Take your Bibles, please. Open them to the book of Hebrews, the seventh chapter. We come this morning back to passage that we have been looking at, and we will read beginning at the 11th verse of Hebrews chapter 7. If you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke concerning nothing concerning the priesthood. And it is far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has not come, not a, who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the beginning of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day, and we pray that you would teach us to love and to honor Christ. Give us clarity and understanding. And I pray, Father, that you would distill from your word truth that will shape our lives. Let us be transformed into the very likeness of Christ, that all who see us and all who encounter us would know the stamp of grace. And God, we pray that as we live out what has been given to us in Christ, we would remember that it is not born of us, and it is not born of our righteousness, but it is born of the alien righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let us display that in all that we do. Transform us by his grace and for his glory. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we have been engaging with this passage for a while now, and I want to just remind us that what we're thinking about is the perfection that has been given to us in Christ, that the superiority of the priesthood of Christ over the Aaronic, the Old Testament priesthood, surpasses anything we could understand. And and some of that, as we will uh, return back into the flow of the passage after just a few more weeks of, of thinking about this this bag of blessings that's been given to us. Um, But I want to just remind us that all of the things that we're thinking about, we began with considering the perfect righteousness that is ours because of the priesthood of Christ. And last week we talked about perfect peace and how we have been given perfect peace because Christ accomplished what he came to do. He actually paid for sin, which none of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was able to do. The Old Testament law, the Old Testament obedience, the outward righteousness of the law, all of the things that are comprised in the work of the Old Testament could not in themselves save anyone. The only thing that saves is the blood of Christ shed for sin. Now the scripture tells us that God counted their righteousness as faith in Christ, and and we see all of that coming forward, but we need to recognize that the priesthood itself is an inefficient thing. It is not sufficient for the need. And it wasn't sufficient for the righteousness. It wasn't sufficient for the peace. 
And it's not sufficient for the understanding either. It's not sufficient that you can approach God and say, I'm going to live my life the best way that I can. And by doing that, I'm going to understand how to be righteous in your sight. It's not possible for us to do that. Because every external righteousness that man puts on is insufficient to know God. God's righteousness surpasses ours. God's wisdom surpasses ours. The fullness of everything that has been given to us is insufficient until it comes to Christ. From the very beginning, God has shown us his plan and his will in a long series of progressive revelation. This revelation was by nature incomplete. It gave light enough for the thing that was light enough for the thing that was needed at the moment, but underneath it it was always the promise of Christ who would complete the revelation and bring us into the fullness of understanding that's promised to the children of light. In Christ Jesus this has been fulfilled. Christ fulfilled righteousness. Um, the Old Testament priesthood gave only incomplete understanding. But what I want you to grasp this morning is that our understanding has been made complete in Christ. You have been given perfect understanding. If if God speaks to you out of his word, that speaking is, is a right and perfect understanding. The Old Testament priesthood gave shadows and hints. But in Christ, our understanding has been made whole and perfect. So I want to think with you about this Knowledge, and I want to think with you just a little bit about it, what it was in the Old Testament, and then think about what we were given in the New. So the very first thing that we need to understand is that the Old Testament is a partial revelation. So we can look at the Old Testament from Genesis all the way through Malachi, and we can understand that God has been giving a little more light and a little more light and a little more light and a little more light. He's built upon the things that he gave. So, for instance, we could think about the promises of Jesus. We could think about the promise that God made that he would send Messiah. And the very first one that we find, we find in Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, the full prophecy simply says that God's going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. And you're going to, crush his, you're going to bruise his heel and he's going to crush your head. And that's the promise. That's, that's the full, that's the messianic, that is the proto-evangelion. That is the, the minutest portion and the first beginning of the messianic promise. Not a whole lot there for us to go with. But as God continues to give promise and God continues to give light and God continues to give revelation, more is added. And so what this does is it gives us a picture whereby in the Old Testament people were learning the character of God. And remember, all the way back in the beginning of Hebrews 1, when we started this book years ago, it it tells us in in that, that in the former times, God had spoken through the prophets and through visions and through all of these things. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through whom? Through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the revelation has been building up to Christ. So all of the knowledge that's given in the Old Testament must be understood in light of the final revelation, which is Jesus Christ himself. What Christ came to do, apart from dying for sin, was to make known to us the Father. And in doing that, he himself completes all of the Old Testament revelation. So the the reason for Jesus' coming is twofold. It is to die for sin, and it is to give us understanding. This is because the understanding that we had not only was 
partial, it was also imperfect. We, if we don't have the full picture, you're not going to come up with the right answers. And to, so for people to run back to the Old Testament and say, yes, we have to interpret the New Testament in light of the Old, and we have to draw in these things and draw in those things. If you read the New Testament, that was what Paul was fighting against for the bulk of the, old, bulk of the New Testament. The book of Galatians is, is a complete exposition of why we are not to return to the Old Testament law. In everything that we do, we must understand that the Old Testament informs us as we come to the New, and that the Old Testament is not completely put away, but it is completed in the New Testament. So we have to have it in a right perspective. We have to understand that the power of the Old Testament is that it shows us Christ on every page. It gives us the promises of God. And it reminds us that God is always faithful to fulfill and to keep the words that he has spoken. And sometimes the Old Testament lays out for us the basic problem. And so as this incomplete partial revelation was being made known to people, there was the truth that those understandings were driven by fallen hearts and minds. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. Now, of all the nations in the world, Israel alone was given the revelation of God. Of all the nations in the world, Israel alone was given the law of God. It was given the place of preference as God made them his own people. And so we would think that Israel should have lived lives of obedience and righteousness. But in Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 16, this is what we find. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land and for the idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the countries, and I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name, and they said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they've gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations, wherever they went. So what we see is that Israel had lived in a way that was inconsistent with the truth that they had been given. And there's a really telling phrase at the beginning of that statement, and it says this, they did not do according to what I wanted, but they, they did according to their own ways. And this idea is something that we need to engage with for ourselves. We need to recognize the truth that very often we are guilty of not letting Scripture inform our thinking about God, but instead we allow our preferences and our ideas and our own agendas to, to form our opinions and our, our beliefs about God. Look, here's the truth. We have no course except what the Scripture has told us to do. We have no option except to obey what God has said. And for us as followers of Jesus Christ, if we are going to engage with God, we have to let God tell us how that works. We have to let God be the one who establishes the boundaries and establishes the practices and establishes the manner of our doing. We're not free to just make it up. We're not free to just go, well, I'm just going to worship God however it seems right to me. That's not what we're supposed to do. 
God is very clear. And when we walk in that way, we find ourselves not walking in the blessing that God has called us to walk in. We find ourselves being corrected, which is often painful. We find ourselves out of active fellowship with God because we have refused to stand and to do as he told us to do. You see, in the end, the refusal of man to hear the will of God in the law was the problem. And God promised all the way back in the Old Testament when Moses was still giving the law and speaking the truth to the people that there would come a day where God would send somebody that they would actually finally listen to. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, it says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, and him you shall hear. Now, who is he speaking of? Jesus Christ, right? Moses prophesied Christ. Moses said, look, you guys aren't listening to me. You're not listening to the things that I told you to do. You're not listening to the law that God gave me to give to you. You're already walking in disobedience. And this is before they'd even gotten into the land. They're, 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 they're still just walking in chaos. They're walking in ruin. And, but Moses said, look, one day I'm going to raise up a prophet from among my people. And him you're going to listen to. He's not going to be from Aaron's line. So this is another indication that the Aaronic priesthood is not the answer. Moses was of the line of Aaron, right? Moses was a Levite. Aaron, obviously, was a Levite. And, and so we see that, that this statement from among the people, it excludes that he would be a Levitical priest. It makes this one who will come somebody other. And Jesus is the one who came. And so we have this promise that when Jesus comes, he's going to give us the ability to listen because what us also promise is that the change that will help us listen is driven by a new and a Godward heart. A little further down in Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 25, it says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and all of your idols, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments, and you will do them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, for you shall be my people, and I will be your God. You see, God was always speaking towards what he was going to accomplish in Israel. He was always speaking towards what he was going to accomplish through Israel. The, the objective is not a restoration of a Levitical priesthood. The objective is not a restoration of a physical temple in Israel. The, the objective is not a return to the Old Testament law or the Old Testament practices. Go home this afternoon and eat your ham. It is completely okay in the sight of God. It is not wrong for you to consume pork. It is not wrong that we worship on Sunday instead of on Saturday. It is not wrong that we do not keep the Old Testament feasts. All of those things have passed away. What the scripture tells us is that God's intent and God's purpose in what he was doing through the Old Testament was to produce Jesus. Because Jesus is the only way that anybody will ever come into a right relationship with God. You can be as nice as you know how to be. You can be the best person on the whole planet, maybe even the best person in the city of Onega. 
You, you might be the top of the heap, but it is not ever going to be enough. Because the standard by which God judges our actions is perfection. The standard by which God says, okay, do this and you'll be good enough, is perfect obedience to the law. And none of us will ever do that. This is why Christ had to come, because he alone fulfilled the law. He alone obeyed it on our behalf. And in his obedience, he went to the cross and died a death for our sin, giving to us his righteousness and taking upon himself our disobedience. This is what Israel was designed to produce. But that's a lot to take in, even on this side of the cross. Amen? That's hard for people to get their head around, even here, having been given full revelation. So what we see in the Old Testament was a whole bunch of shadows and types and hints and nuances. We see God aiming around it. We see God giving them things to think about. For instance, Hebrews 10.1 says this about it. It says, The law having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never with the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. Because all of these things were hidden. Ephesians 3.9 says, To make everybody see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Do you ever wonder why when Jesus came to the earth and he was speaking to his disciples and he was speaking to the crowds, he taught in parables? Do you remember the crowds or the disciples asked him, why do you teach in parables? What did he tell them? So that you understand and they don't. Because these things are still being hidden. The full revelation of what's going on was still too much for them to take in. And when he said that, he was also quoting Scripture. The Old Testament in Psalm 78, verses 2 and 3 says this, I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. See, the truth is, even the prophets who spoke did not see clearly what they were prophesying. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and following says this, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. See, the truth is, is that the people of God waited for the promised light. They wanted to understand, but they couldn't. Because they were not capable of it, just as apart from God's grace and mercy, we are not capable of understanding. They waited for the light. They waited for clarity. Isaiah 11.9 says, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in chapter 54, verse 13, Isaiah says, All of your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. This is the promise. This is what they were waiting for. It's the idea that God himself will teach us. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their sin and their iniquity. I will remember no more. So here's the reality. 
All of this, all of these promises, all of these hints, all of the dark sayings, all of the parables, all of the things that were alluded to in the Old Testament and brought here and brought there, they were part. They were hints. They were just a little bit. And the people who understood even some of it understood it by the grace that was given to them by God. But you... Beloved, (laughs) this side of Calvary with the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we have the mind of Christ. God has given to us understanding. He has given to us understanding by the grace that has been given to us in Christ. Look at the 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're going to start reading at verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting at verse 6. Paul writes this. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. That means all of the pundits and the know-it-alls who want to talk to you on television, they don't know anything they're talking about. That's, That's pretty good to know. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, and which none of the ages, none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So the Holy Spirit that dwells in us gives us wisdom and understanding. He gives to us the knowledge that we need in order to interpret and understand and have a right understanding of what God has said. Apart from the Holy Spirit, that's just not possible. Verse 13. These things we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged By no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So I want to think with you about what this means then that God has given to us this understanding which was hidden from generations past. Because God has given to us a great and precious gift, He's given to us understanding, He's given to us the ability to open His Word. And have his spirit speak to us as we read his word. So that we might have a right understanding of how God calls us to live. How God calls us to walk in fellowship. How God calls us to grow in grace. How God gives to us the blessings and the mercies that are ours in Christ. All of these things that are mysteries to people outside of Christ. God has made known to those who are in him. This is his glory. This is his grace. This is his promise. And so the very first thing that it does is it reveals to us hidden things. Do you ever find yourself reading scripture that you've read a hundred times and all of a sudden you look at it and go, huh, when did they put that in there? (laughs) 
It's a remarkable thing to find God still bringing light out of darkness when clarity and confusion are are shed abroad. And sometimes it can turn on the smallest comment. It can turn on the, the tiniest piece of Scripture. It can turn on somebody else reading Scripture and speaking to you about what God has said to them. It can turn on half a statement here, half a statement there. But it's driven by the Spirit of God who dwells in us, who brings light to the darkness. Beloved, God doesn't want us to be confused about his will for our lives. He doesn't want us to be confused about what we're called to do in the midst of these days. Because in the end, the focus of the plan has been revealed to us correctly. What was the plan before? The the priesthood and Israel and all those things. What was the purpose of the plan? To produce Christ and to demonstrate that nobody could ever be righteous enough. I mean, what was the the big takeaway from the Old Testament law and the structure of the priesthood? Had to keep doing it, right? Every day something's dying. Every day there's blood being shed. Every day there's sacrifices. Every day there are things being slaughtered because of your guilt. It was a constant reminder that you were not good enough. In fact, when, when, the, when the temple itself was built, it was built in this, this concentric set of squares that were designed to keep people away from the presence of God. At the heart of the temple was the holiest place where nobody went except the high priest, and then only once a year, and then only with blood. Outside of that was the holy place where the priest ministered before God, but the regular people never got to go in. Outside of that, you had the court where the sacrifices were made. Outside of that, you had the court of the Gentiles. And outside of all of that were the the law and the walls, which were designed to keep people away. The whole system was designed to tell us, you are not good enough. You never will be good enough. And that offends people. That, That drives them away. But the heart of the matter is this. Beloved, we are not good enough. Until God himself intervenes in our life and pours grace on us through Christ. And then our own actions are still not good enough. It is only the fact that God gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ counted to our credit. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God takes our sin and counts it to the credit of Christ and slaughters Christ on the cross, pouring out the fullness of his wrath, pouring out the fullness of everything that our sins deserve. Jared prayed earlier, if if apart from Christ, we would be all in hell. That portion of our hell was poured out upon Christ. And at the same time, God gives all of that to the credit of Christ. We find that God gives to us then the credit for the righteousness that Jesus Christ fulfilled. He kept the law. He obeyed everything that God ever said that man was supposed to do. He avoided everything God said man is not supposed to do. He never sinned, not one time in his entire life. And he had absolute obedience to the law of God, meaning that above everything else, he loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength every second that he was on the earth. That was the fullness of his life. And beloved, hear this. If you are found in Christ, God looks at you and he sees that righteousness in your place. Perfect obedience to the law, perfect love for God, perfect righteousness. He counts it to your credit as if you 
had actually done it. Where the Old Testament law gave us darkness and fear and terror because we know we can never be good enough, the fullness of everything being revealed in Christ takes that fact and turns it into glory as Christ said, I've kept it on your account. But that understanding doesn't come to us by nature. That understanding doesn't come to us by going out on a pond and fishing. That understanding doesn't come to us by by listening to cute stories about somebody's kids. That understanding doesn't come to us by all the things that pass for church. That understanding comes to us by the Word of God and the Word of God alone. That understanding comes to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding that is not possible to be obtained by any other means. We have the Word of God. And we have the mind of Christ who reveals to us the focus of the plan, the revelation of the majesty of our redemption in Christ. And we could spend all day, every day, for the rest of eternity doing nothing but pondering the majesty of Christ in our salvation. And here's the newsflash. When we get there, we will. (laughs) That's, That's the theme of heaven. The glory of Christ. The majesty of Christ in salvation. That's what we do. We spend our days worshiping God for what he has done. So that's the focus of the plan. But that's something that has been revealed in Christ. That's something that has only been revealed by the mind of God being given to us through the mind of Christ. This is what has been done. This is God making understanding possible. Now, it's still a mystery to those who are outside of grace. And this mystery assures that all things proceed according to the plan of God. So this is one of those things that, honestly, um, I looked at and I went, huh, when did that get put in here? So look at me again back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. Talking about the wisdom of God and the mystery of God and the things that God had hidden. Verse 8 says, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, I've, I've seen that before. I've preached on that before. But it struck me this week with a new force. As I considered the shape of the world around us right now. And I consider all the evil things that are going on. And I consider all the things that are happening wherever we might be as humans on this planet. You think about war, and you think about slavery, and you think about trafficking children, and you think about all the things that are in the news. You think about insanity at every level. You think about governments running amok. You think about all the problems and all the chaos that's going on around us right now. And the question that haunts us all the time is, why can they not just do what God tells them to do? Why does the world have to be this way? But what Paul tells us in in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, is that these things have to be because... If they knew the truth, then things would not be proceeding according to plan. So just step back and look at the argument that Paul's making here. He says, look, nothing more evil has ever been done than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The only righteous man to ever walk on the earth, the only man who's ever done it right, was slaughtered as if he was guilty. And he was slaughtered by the people that he came to speak truth to. He was slaughtered by the people that he loved. Murdered is not too strong of a word. 
But if they had understood what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. And we would be without hope. You see, even the most evil act that has ever occurred, occurred for the purpose of God to accomplish his will, which he has established before the foundations of the world. And what struck me was a renewed consciousness that the things that I get frustrated about the most are no less important and no less necessary than the thing that mattered most. Amen? These days are exactly as they are supposed to be according to the will and the purpose of God. And we're called to fight for righteousness. We're called to fight for truth. We're called to try and advance the gospel. We're called to engage with a lost culture to proclaim the truth. And we're called to do that not because God needs us, but because God in his mercy permits us to be a part of his triumph. In, in one very real sense, you could look at everything that the church does from the time of, of the church being begun in Acts chapter 2 until the church is called home. And you could say, boy, are we a great water boy. <laughs> we carried the water for the team, and the team is God and only God. It's his work, and it's his triumph, and it's his glory. But we get to partake in it like we actually had something to do with it. And I think that's just amazing. Because it removes from all of us the, the burden of, oh, I didn't say that right. And, oh, I, I didn't have the right thing to say when, when that person was here. And I didn't go there. And I didn't do this. And I didn't... It, it doesn't matter. What God required has been accomplished. And God will have his victory. And our labor, as poor as it might be, will be counted as credit. It just boggles the imagination that God could be that good to us. So, beloved, we look at the world around us and we see the chaos and we see the madness and we see the terrible things. And yes, we're supposed to fight against them. And I know that sometimes it feels hopeless. And I know that we feel like we have nothing we're capable of doing that's going to make any difference whatsoever. But I also know that what we do is what God has ordained for us to do so that we might partake in His victory. It is not ours to win the day. It is his. And there's joy in that. There's joy in that because I don't have to see the victory to know that it's there. I don't have to see the triumph in order to have the promise that it's actually going to take place. This is his will. And this is his purpose. He has called us to walk with him in grace. And he's called us to walk with him in his victory. And there's joy in that. And the mystery demonstrates the incredible depth of God's purpose in love for us. Because if Christ was willing to die in our place, is there anything that God would withhold from his children? Absolutely not. But that understanding does not occur in the absence of God's revelation. Both his revelation through his word and the revelation that's given to us by the spirit dwelling in us to make these things live. These truths change us. And these truths transform the way that we see the world around us. Because God has revealed to us the mystery of his will. He has revealed to us the fullness of his love, the scope of his purpose, and the incredible reasons for his work of redemption. Justification. The fact that God has pronounced all of our sins as not guilty. And at the same time that he has pronounced us not guilty, he has pronounced us absolutely righteous. 
our sanctification, the work by which he makes the outside of our lives transformed into the likeness of what he's already declared us to be. The promise of glorification, as he promises us that at the end we will be made complete. And we have the promise of the consummation of all things. Now this is something that we don't always think about, but maybe we should think about it just a little bit more. And it's the truth that at the end, God will finish what he has begun. Nothing is going to be left unresolved. The bad things that happen and nobody ever gets punished for them, don't worry, God knows. The the evil that takes place behind closed doors when men lie and they get away with it, don't worry, God knows. When Christ comes, he will set to right all things that have been made wrong. And when Christ comes, he will consummate righteousness in all the earth. And we will find the glory that has been being made even in the midst of the chaos. Because God himself is the master chef. He's the one doing the work. He is the one who is producing what he intends to produce. God has called us to speak truth as it is revealed and demonstrated in Scripture in spite of the fact that those outside of Christ will always reject the truth unless the Spirit is calling them. Just know it going into the conversation. Know that when you carry the truth to somebody, unless Christ is at work in their heart, they're going to reject it. You're going to see the shutters close in their eyes. You're going to see the body tense up. You're going to see the teeth clench. You're going to see them angry. You might hear some words that you forgot about. And and in the end, a lot of things are going to take place that are not going to fill you with hope. But you need to know two things about those conversations. And the first one is, is that sometimes the seed that's planted takes a while to bring a harvest. Can you tell me what the first sermon we know Paul heard was? <laughs> it, it, was it was when Stephen was being murdered. As Paul stood there holding their coats. That's the first time we encounter Paul. Now he may have heard the truth before, but that's the first one we can point to and say, I know he heard it then. And rather than filling Paul with faith and hope and confidence and saying, wow, this Jesus is somebody I want to know more about, instead it filled Paul with hatred for the church. And the scripture tells us that he went out breathing fire and vengeance against the church, against the brethren. He persecuted, he slaughtered, he imprisoned. He did everything in his power to destroy the gospel that God then used to save him. And you have to understand the truth that when Christ spoke to him on the road to Damascus, all of the things that he had heard came to fruit in that moment. It wasn't just a blinding light. It was a blinding light that was filled with the revelation of God. And and Paul went, oh, that's what he meant. (laughs) Aha, now I understand. Who, Who exactly is this Lord? Who exactly is is speaking to me right now? I think I know, but I want to hear you say it. Because he'd been preached to. So, beloved, don't think that the fact that you're carrying the truth to people that reject it means that they're always going to reject it. Don't fall into that trap. Don't fall into the trap that says that the results you've gotten in the past are always going to be the results that you get in the future. 
I understand the wisdom of the world says that the definition of insanity is to do the same thing you've always done and expect different results. But beloved, that's also the way we preach the gospel. Keep preaching the truth. Don't change it to satisfy men. Keep preaching the truth. Proclaim the truth in spite of the fact that the world consistently rejects it. Because in the fullness of time, the truth spoken will bring results. Period. That's God's promise to us. How long did it take from the very first whisper of a promised Messiah to the completion of Christ? 4,000 years, give or take a little bit. That's a long time to wait. It's a long time for promises to be made real. It's a long time for God to give us his will, and yet he has. You see, God intends us to know his will. He intends us to know what it is he wants us to know. Here's something you may not think about. When you're reading the Bible, and you come across someplace where um, somebody who's writing the Bible is praying for you. We find a lot of these places in the New Testament where Paul says, it is my prayer for you that this happens or this happens or that happens, right? When you read those prayers, those prayers being committed to the pages of Scripture say this, it is God's will that those things be accomplished. The fact that that prayer has been committed to Scripture is your guarantee that that prayer is something God wants in your life. So pray it for yourself and pray it with with confidence knowing that God is going to answer the prayers that he delights in answering. God is going to answer the prayers that, that are in alignment with his will. And the prayers that have been prayed for the church in the New Testament are prayers that have been given to show us God's will. This understanding is something that God gives. So I want to look at a few of those prayers with you this morning in conclusion, and I want you to think with me about some of the things that God might give to us out of these prayers so that you might have some understanding about what it is that God is intending to do in your life and through your life. Okay? Let's look at a few. Um, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 15. We're actually going to just pull quite a few out of Ephesians. So once you get to Ephesians, you're almost home free. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. It says this, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints... Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So here's what Paul's praying for them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling. Just as an aside, we're talking about God giving us understanding, right? And here Paul is praying that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. That you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So just a few things we can draw out of this magnificent prayer. God wants you to have wisdom. Anybody ever feel like, man, I need some wisdom here? Do you know that God intends to give you wisdom when you ask for it? Paul prayed for you that you would have wisdom. He prayed specifically for the church at Ephesus, but he prayed for you as well. Because the Bible has been given to you. Now there are other prayers that Paul prayed that we have no idea what they are. Do you know why? Because they were not for you. And that's okay. I have no idea what he prayed for the church at Laodicea. That letter is gone. And it's gone because God did not intend it for us. But the things that he intended for us, we have. He intends you to have wisdom. He intends you to have understanding. And he intends wisdom and understanding to combine to give you hope. Look, how many of you look at the news tonight or last night or whenever you last see the news? For me, it's, it's, it's a long time in between because the news is bad for my soul. How many of you look at the news and feel like, man, that's a hopeful story? No? How many of you look at the news and walk away feeling depressed and anxious and upset? Angry? That would be me. Hence, it's bad for my soul, so I try not to do it. In the end, what God wants us to have is hope. What God promises us is hope. What God gives us through Christ is hope. And that hope comes from understanding. And that hope comes from seeing the revelation of what God is doing. And all of these things come to us because God wants to give them to us. He wants to give us light. Light in the darkness, right? Clarity to see and to, to pierce through all of the, the fog of garbage that's being poured out. They want you afraid. They want you worried. They want you filled with terror all the time. And so they're going to they're gonna plug this, and they're going to plug that, and they're going to tell you this is happening, and that thing is bad, and, and this terrible, awful situation is occurring. Therefore, do what we say. They want you to be afraid. Whoever they are, I don't know. doesn't matter. The world wants you to be afraid. The enemy of your souls wants you to be afraid. But God wants you to have hope. He wants you to have light to see in the darkness. He wants you to have light to understand what's really going on. He wants you to be confident in Him. Because in light and in understanding and in hope, there is power. Power in love. Skip forward just a little bit further. Ephesians chapter 3. Starting at verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you. Now, he doesn't say here, I'm praying, but bow the knee is, a, is an allusion to praying, right? So he's saying, this is what I'm praying, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in your inner man, 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him, and I love this, as he prays that awesome prayer for us, he concludes it with this. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You want power? Understand the depth of God's love for you. You want to have power in your life? You want to know how to walk in victory over everything that assails you? Understand that there is nothing in the world or outside of the world that can ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And He has demonstrated that to you by giving you His Son. You want power for your life? Know how deeply God loves you. And more than that, know why God loves you so deeply. He doesn't love you that deeply because you are wonderful. He loves you that deeply because he is determined to love you and nothing you do can ever change his mind. He has purposed to love you. And he always gets his way. Out of that knowledge of love comes strength, comprehension, fullness. It transforms us, doesn't it? Doesn't it change us to know who we are in Christ? Doesn't it change us to know the love of God? Absolutely. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 8. For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk then as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things are exposed and made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So this is really more of an answered prayer. This is the idea that Paul is expecting that his prayers for the church in Ephesus have been answered. And he says, because these things are true, this is how you live. So there's a responsibility which has been given to us to live in accordance to what we are. Now, this responsibility is not something that is going to negate your salvation if you get it wrong, thankfully. Because there's none of us that are going to get this right 100% of the time. In fact, there's very few of us that are going to get this right most of the time. We're going to get this wrong more than we get it right. Because we are still human. We are still growing. We are still learning. God is still changing us. But the heart of it is that in everything that we do, our lives should be changed by the knowledge of what Christ is. So when God shows you something new about Jesus... When he gives you that light, he gives you that understanding, he gives you that clarity. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop in that moment. And I want you to ask yourself this question. What in my life needs to change because of this understanding? Because God has not given you understanding simply for its own sake. Does that make sense? 
God is not giving you understanding just so you can be the smartest guy in the room. He's giving you understanding so that your life will be conformed to the image of Christ. So when God gives you new understanding, when he gives you new revelation, when he gives you a new perspective, understand that the reality of that is it should change something about you. So stop and ask, Lord, what is it that you want my life to look like because of this truth? What is it that you want me to change? What is it that you want to change in me? How do you want to transform me because of this thing that you've just made real to me? That's the calling. Are you going to get it right? Absolutely not. But should it at least be on the radar? Uh Uh-huh. Should it be something that you're striving for? Yeah. Should it be something that you should be engaged with to say, Lord, this is what you've told me. This is what I want to be. So that when you fail... You might stop, ask for repentance, make course corrections right then. If you're setting out to go five miles across country and you've got your map and you've got your compass and you're a degree off when you set out, how far are you going to be when you get five degrees, you get five miles out there? A long way. No, I'm not asking you to do math. Just understand it's a long way off, right? The difference between here and here. Translated over five miles is miles. It's terrible. So it is always good for you somewhere in the middle to stop and make a course correction. It's always good for you to stop and go, okay, am I on course? Am I not on course? Beloved, when God gives you understanding and you get it wrong, you know what you're supposed to be doing, so stop in that moment and say, Lord, please help me. I just messed that up. Teach me to walk in truth. Fix what needs to be fixed. Stop right then in that moment and keep very, very short books with God. Because in the end, the distance that you're off will be much less if you have made constant course corrections. The distance that you're off is going to be a whole lot easier to correct if you've been correcting it all along. Amen? It should yield a changed life. But it should also yield a knowledge that this changed life is a calling from God. Now, this is, this is the reality of everything that we need to recognize. God has made you something new. He's made you be something new. He's made you walk in something new. He has made you into something that never was before. So look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Way toward the back of the book. Starting at verse 9. He's just been speaking about the people who are walking in disobedience. And he says this at verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but who now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, 
Abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Look, you are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. If you are found in Christ, you are something that you were not. And if you are found in Christ, you have been made this for the purpose of the glory of Christ. This new and beautiful expression of the majesty and the glory and the power of who Christ is. And the fullness of everything that that is before us and in us is given so that Christ might be exalted among the nations, so that Christ might be made much of, so that Christ might be loved, so that Christ might be honored. This is something magnificently new. It is something gloriously, profoundly beautiful. And it's something that only Jesus does. His power in us changes us. And it makes us something new. This is his work. And this is what Paul is praying for. And this is what Christ prayed for when he said to glorify himself, that God may be glorified. This is the fullness of everything that God has given to us, that we might display who Christ is, that we might proclaim him to a lost world. And that we might do so not only for the sake of their souls, but more importantly, for the sake of the glory and the honor of Christ. We have been given this trust. And this trust is beautiful. And it means that no matter what's going on in the world around us, the understanding of how to navigate these waters has been given to us in Christ. It's His glory. And it's His power. And you, as a child of God, are His people. A holy nation, a royal priesthood. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day and that you would teach us to honor you. God, I pray that if there's any part of anything that I said that's amiss, that you would take it away. Lord, but take the truth and plant it in us. Let our lives be profoundly changed by the consideration of this clarity and understanding that you give to us. God, teach us to walk in truth. Teach us to obey Teach us to live in accordance to your commands that Christ would be honored. For we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory we pray. Amen.